Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We have been on an excursus, kind of a temporary break, uh, side track, from going through the book of Ephesians. We are in uh, chapter 6, chapters 5, in the beginning of chapter 6, um, we have considered as the household code, uh, referred to at the time uh, that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. The household code has to do with wives and husbands, has to do with children and fathers, has to do with uh, slaves and masters. Composition of a typical household at the time that Paul is writing. However, um, given the composition of our congregation, we have many that are not married uh, in the church, either never been married or have been married, not now currently married. And we wanted to spend some time on the subject of singles. Uh, and um, the Bible had a lot to say about that. So we began by looking at singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and what the Bible had to say about those that are unmarried in various states of singleness. We went on to look at relationships in biblical perspective, particularly looking at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, how God created male and female, and how the fall into sin affected the roles, responsibilities, and relationships of males and females. And I won't repeat everything that was said at that point. And then we looked uh, last time at viva la difference, uh, obviously that men and women are different, and uh, began to look at specific uh, exhortations, uh, perhaps, admonishments to uh, men and women in their uh, state of singleness and their pursuit of uh, romance and dating and finding a spouse. So uh, we conclude this uh, series, or excursus, if you will, uh, today by looking at the subject of physical and emotional purity, more specifically when it comes to uh, dating uh, in general. So uh, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first eight verses there. And the three points uh, of the sermon uh, this morning are the persons to whom uh, this is addressed, the principle upon which it is based, and the uh, uh, concept of purity in one's relationships, uh, male-female relationships. So person's principle and purity. Um, let's, uh, let's pray and then read God's word. Father, we come to your word this morning recognizing that you have told us it is our life. Generate in us a healthy reverence for your word that we might indeed consider it our very life. Help us to hear and to heed what you would say to us this morning, and I pray that you would speak through your servant to the hearts of those assembled. And ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, 
not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Well, as uh, I trust uh, is apparent and obvious uh, from what we've just read, uh, the persons to whom this is written are Christians. This is not a general social uh, guideline for human beings in general, but it is addressed specifically to the church. It is specifically addressed to Christians. You can see that in verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, all right, uh, again in verse 6, that no one wrong his brother um, in this matter, okay? And the ethical imperatives or commands or instructions that are contained in these verses are based on and flow from a gospel indicative, all right? This means that one has to get their gospel grammar right. Imperatives uh, in uh, the New Testament flow from the indicative. If that's too uh, uh, abstract for you, uh, the instructions, the commands, the precepts, and the directive, which Paul here and Peter and others elsewhere uh, set forth, are based on the indicative of what God in Christ has done for those who are being addressed. That is Christians or members of the church. All right, God in Christ um, has redeemed, reconciled, rescued, saved, whatever word you prefer, sinners from the wrath of God and from the horrors and condemnation of hell by offering his son as a substitutionary sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. That which we deserve, the wages of sin, is death, uh, has been paid for Jesus Christ by his death on the cross. That which you and I lack, that is obedience and righteousness, has been earned by Jesus Christ and given to us. In the words of the Apostle Paul, God made him who knew no sin, the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, to be sin, taking the sins of his people upon himself <clears throat> and, and punished on the cross, the, uh, the wages of sin is death, in order that in him, in Jesus, we might be the righteousness of God, that which God requires, all right? So we need to get that straight. Paul is not setting this forth and saying how to be a good person. Paul is not uh, setting forth these principles, what it means to live uh, uh, an upright life uh, for in general to humanity. He's addressing Christians. And he's saying, in the words of the last services sermon, I have loved you by giving my son to purchase you with his own precious blood. This is how I want you to love me. All right? So... Let's get that straight. <clears throat> Look at uh, verse 2. How you receive from us, how you walk, how you ought to walk and to please God. All right? Do this more and more. This is a Christian's response of love and gratefulness to God. Paul says elsewhere, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Well, that has to do with one's dating relationships as well. Male-female relationships. Male-female relationships are not somehow um, encased uh, 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 or remote or, or removed from uh, having to glorify God. 
Paul says, whatever you do, whatsoever you do, including your dating relationships, you're to do so to the glory of God, to please God. That's how you ought to walk, all right? So if you uh, are here this morning and you are not uh, a faithful Christian seeking to live life pleasing in God's sight, then you need to turn uh, from your sin and you need to begin living the way that God would want you to live, the way that Paul lays out here uh, with respect to men and women, all right? So those are the persons that are being addressed. Secondly, and all importantly, the underlying principle, which is from Genesis and all throughout the Bible from the Old into the New Testament, What I have to say this morning, what Paul has to say here in these verses to Christians, the church, is the application of the doctrine of the antithesis to dating relationships. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, the antithesis is, think black-white, the exact opposite, all right? Um, Extreme contrast. That word antithesis, though, is a biblical word, and it comes from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You don't have to turn there. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God comes to the respective parties in the fall into sin in the Garden of Eden, and he pronounces curses on the man, the woman, and the serpent. And to the serpent, he says, I will place hostility, enmity, hatred between you and the woman, between your seed, your descendants, and her seed. All right? And that is the antithesis. The antithesis is the God-ordained hostility between the church and the world, between the seed of the serpent, or the seed of the woman, the church, and the seed of the serpent, the world, between the descendants of Eve and the descendants of the devil. God placed hostility, enmity, hatred there. It's a God-ordained hostility. That there would always be a distinct difference between the church and the world. And that hostility is played out in the entirety of the Bible. It begins in Genesis 4, where we see Cain slay Abel. There's that hatred. There's that enmity. There's that hostility. Well, we see that uh, contrast called for in order to preserve the church, to be different from the world, all right? And Satan's, Paul, rewind, Paul says we are not unaware of his schemes. The devil's schemes are always twofold. To remove the church from the world by killing Christians, or to remove the word from the church. That is, that you are no different than the world. And that application of the doctrine of the antithesis here, all right, is being applied to dating. That in one's dating relationships, in the relationships of male and female amongst Christians, all right, you are to be different from the world. And at stake is the preservation of the church and the glory of God, all right? The danger in our day is the danger of being dominated by foreign, unbiblical, and anti-covenantal influences. What are those influences? Predominantly two, individualism and romanticism, all right? Individualism and romanticism. What do I mean by that, all right? Well, individualism sees dating as a means to personal fulfillment, all right? That is not what a dating is for a Christian, all right? Or romanticism, okay? 
Romanticism, if I could define it for you, is full of or dominated by thoughts, feelings, and attitudes characterized by romance, preoccupied with idealistic lovemakings. Uh, Romanticism is subjective, that is, it's in here, and it's dominated by personal feelings, all right? Covenantal, by contrast, includes feelings, okay? We are body, soul, and heart, head, heart, and soul. We have feelings. God has created us with feelings. It's not as if we're to be devoid of them. But a covenantal perspective includes feelings, but it is objective, and it is God-centered. It's not focused on me. Let me just repeat one of these things, which I probably never repeat enough, The 1030 service was God first, God first. Got to repeat that often, 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 right? The other thing is it's not all about you. You are not the center of the universe. You are not the center of the world, all right? This is a lesson that children need to leave, uh, learn while they're on the changing table. And it's something which parents seek to instill uh, into their children's lives. But a lot of adults have not learned that. The world does not revolve around you. You are not the center of the world. If you're a Christian, you ought to think covenantally. All right? Not individualistically. And covenantally includes feelings, but it's objective and it's God-centered. <clears throat> Romance, romanticism, will subordinate God's word to personal feelings. One of my pet peeves is when people say, I feel two plus two equals four. No, you don't. <laughs> you think two plus two equals four. Talk like you mean, all right? Everybody talks about feelings, feelings, feelings. This is the problem of the generation in which we live, all right? Romanticism will subordinate God's word to feelings. Popularly, you've probably heard, if it feels good, do it. How could something that feels so right be so wrong? Romanticism subordinates God's word to feelings. All right? Covenantal perspective, the opposite is true. We subordinate our feelings to God's word. What God says, we echo. What God says, we say yes. What God says, we amen. That is life. That is worship. That is everything. Look with me at Genesis chapter 29. I just want, don't think that you have some uh, psychologist or sociologist up here spouting some theory he learned in a classroom somewhere. Uh, This is something that's based on the Bible, all right? Look at Genesis chapter 29, verse 18, all right? Jacob marries Leah, Rachel. So, verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And all the women go, for a man like that. This has to be one of the most romantic verses in the entire Bible, right? Am I right or am I left? The Bible doesn't eschew or get rid of romance or feelings, but it subordinates it to the covenant. What's the proof? Look, look, look at verses 30 and 31. Look. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Women swoon. 
Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. What's the point? What's the point? Leah was the wife of the covenant. Leah was the wife of the covenant. And God honored the covenant through Leah and gave birth to Levi, Judah, the line of Jesus Christ, through Leah, even though Rachel was loved more romantically. And this is something you singles, if you aspire to be married, you need to get through your head and in your heart, all right? Marriage is much more than legal sex, all right? It's not just, oh, now we can have sex and don't worry about sinning. Well, okay, enjoy it. That comes with marriage. But marriage is much more than that. Marriage is subordinate to the covenant. Marriage serves God's covenant. Marriage has to do with the future. It has to do with the next generation. It has to do with the church. It has to do with a thousand generations. It's not all about you. And when you get married, and God blesses you with children, this is all about the covenant. It's all about God. It's all about the church. It's all about God's covenantal purposes. I will be a God to you and to your children after you. To a thousand generations. So please, understand this. God thinks broader than romance. So, that principle. Okay? I hope you're with me. If you have questions about this, please ask me afterwards. It's so important. I want you to understand it, all right? Just not going to take more time in the course of the sermon. So, what about purity? Well, look at verse 3. Let's get into it. That you abstain from sexual immorality. The word here is porneia. If that sounds familiar, it is the Greek word from which we get our English word, pornography, all right? Now, I just want you to note, okay, that what our society bombards us with messages, what our society calls sex, God calls sin. You you can't go anywhere in New York City without being bombarded with messages regarding sexual immorality. It's on the sides of buses. It's on billboards and the highways. I, I'm, I'm not even going to give illustrations. It's gross, all right? But we are a sex-saturated, sex-dominated society. But God calls it sin. God calls it sin. What's the call then? Any and all sexual behavior outside of marriage is sexual immorality. If I got out a a Greek lexicon for the lexical range of the word porneia, it would be vast. It is extremely broad what's meant by porneia. All right? So, Let's not get into the grammar and the lexicons and the dictionary. Let me summarize it for you. Any and all sexual behavior outside of marriage is sin. All right? Whether that's solo sex and masturbation, 
whether that's sex with another human being that is actual intercourse, or all kinds of sexual exchanges that might fall short, fall short of intercourse, that people somehow salve their consciences with, well, we're not having sex. Depends on what the definition of is is, you may recall. Any and all sexual behavior outside of marriage is sin. Christian's call is to purity. Look at the text. Verse um, 1. This is how you ought to walk and to please God. This is not an old fuddy-duddy up here talking. These are not instructions that are old-fashioned from a previous century or a previous generation. Oh yeah, well, when you were growing up, that's the way it was, but today it's different. No, 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 no. The Bible is timeless. It transcends time, and it transcends cultures. It's the living Word of God, applicable at all times and in all places. This is how you ought to walk and please God. Or look down at uh, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God for you. Look at verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's self-control. I asked somebody this week, I said, what's the difference between self-control and willpower? Good question, right? Do you know what the difference between self-control and willpower is? Willpower is you. Saying, do more, try harder. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus in Luke 11, I think, says, pray for the Spirit to give you the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. That's what Paul's saying there, right? Control your own body in holiness and honor. This is not about do more, try harder. This is not about suck it up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just, Just say no. If ever there was a ridiculous campaign by secular authorities, it was just say no. You ever talk to somebody that's addicted and say, just say no. Smack. Just say no. I'm an addict. Look at verse 5. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Antithesis. Antithesis. You be different. Don't be like them. Don't behave like them. Don't believe like them. Don't act like them. Don't follow their ways. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. And look at verse 6. 
because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Now, I have absolutely no desire nor intention to manipulate you with guilt and make you feel bad. But it is important that we take the word of God seriously. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. You can't play with God. Let me put it this way. There are consequences to behavior. Even the behavior that you think nobody sees, God sees. Look at verse 7. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Purity. Purity. Let's look at some more specifics here that I hope will be helpful. Verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Literally, this means to sin by going beyond the limit or the boundary. To sin by going beyond the limit or the boundary. What's, what's implied in that definition? What's implied in that definition are there are limits and there are boundaries beyond which it's inappropriate. Beyond which Christians should not be engaging in. Beyond which you're living in sin or sinning. I'm sure you've heard the question from other singles perhaps, how far is too far? Well, if you asked me that question, you would have gotten this answer. That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. A Christian isn't supposed to see how close he can get to the edge of a cliff without falling off. Stay as far away as possible. Don't dilly-dally. Don't flirt. Don't tempt. Look at verse 7. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. What should a man and a woman be doing in a dating relationship as Christians? What can you do to help the other person grow closer to Christ? You saw that's idealistic. Really? You think Paul's writing to the church being idealistic? They lived in as much of a sex-saturated society as you and me. No. Called to holiness. To holiness. What can I do to help the other person grow closer to Christ? Couples 
should not be intimate, physically or emotionally. Physically, I'm going to talk about now, emotionally in a moment, all right? Couples should not be physically intimate unless and until you are married. Sex, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. Sex is a beautiful gift of God. It's delightful. It's to be enjoyed. It's a great gift. But God says, I've given you a place to enjoy that gift, and it's in marriage. Not unless, not until. Song of Solomon, you know the Song of Solomon? That's a hot book. Right? You ever read it? Man. The rabbis said you can't read that until you turn 18. Hot stuff. Three times in the book of Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, do not awaken love until it's time. Do not awaken love until it's time. Do not awaken love until it's time. You want the New York International Version? Don't rev the engine if you can't put it in gear. What revs your engine? So sometimes pastor, people ask the pastor, they say, I just want to know where the line is. Draw me some lines. Where, where, what are the boundaries? What are the limits? You know, it's very interesting. You read the book of Proverbs. It doesn't talk about lines and problems. It's generalities. Why? Because it takes wisdom. And what, what may rev your engine may not rev her engine or his or his. So trying to use a boilerplate or a one-size-fits-all is not how the Bible talks about these things. Right? So generally, what revs your engine? Maybe it's holding hands. Watch it then. Maybe it's hugging. Watch it. Maybe it's being alone with a member of the opposite sex. Watch it. Right? What's revving the engine? Don't rev the engine until you can put it in gear. Yeah, what for you is inflammatory? Listen, if I could give you some practical advice with respect to this, I'd say two things. Discuss, and remember, this may sound hokey, all right? I'm trying to help you as your pastor. I love you. I'm trying to help you in these matters, all right? This just... Helpful advice for those who are seeking to have the other person grow closer to Christ in a relationship. Because ultimately, that's what should happen in marriage, right? Marriage is a picture of Christ loving his church. So dating should be a preparation for marriage. How to help the other person grow closer to Christ. All right, so discuss with the other person, right? What are your boundaries, What will you or won't you do on a date? And agree on it beforehand. 
That's what I like to call plan your date. And then date your plan. Some of you know I used to be a construction diver, underwater construction. <clears throat> we would always have a plan. You planned your dive, and then when you got in the water, you dove your plan. If you deviated from that, you could die. And I've seen people get all kinds of messed up because they didn't dive their plan. Plan your date and date your plan. Agree beforehand, prayerfully, what is it that we will do and what is it that we won't do. Listen, you ever, you ever go to the theater, like Broadway theater, right? They don't do this in movies anymore, but Broadway theater, they're like, find the exit light. And know where the nearest exit is. Oh, you go on the plane, they do that too, right? You go on the airplane, it's like find where the nearest exit to you in case of an emergency, you know where to run to get to the exit. The time to look for a fire escape is before there's a fire. The time to look for what's going to be a problem is before you go on the date. Not when you get in the date and you get down that line and all of a sudden the fires are burning and the temptation is there and... The heat of the moment, that's not the time to look for the exit. Pray. Pray together. One young man went to pick up a young Christian sister for a date. He was a perfect gentleman. He got out, opened the door for her. She got in. He walked around to the other side of the car. When he opened his door, she was praying. You know what he said? She ruined everything I had planned for that night. Plan your date, date your plan. There are limits, there are boundaries. Look again at verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Don't take advantage of the other person, we would say today. Don't take advantage of the other person. Don't use them. A relationship without a commitment to that relationship is just using another person for your personal satisfaction and gratification. That's why I almost always, at least when I have the opportunity, tell couples when they begin a relationship, it doesn't have to be a specific, you know, on the first date or but whatever. Don't get too far down the line without defining the relationship. What's going on here? Are we in a relationship? I just want to be friends. We just want to be friends. I want a relationship. See you later. Right? Define the relationship. Because without commitment, you're just using the other person. You're benefiting. You're getting some satisfaction out of that relationship, whether it's intellectual, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, somehow, you're getting a benefit from that relationship, but there's no commitment that's taking advantage of that person. That's just using them. 
And of course, it would be even more so true if you're using each other physically. But this goes for emotional purity as well. All right? Emotional purity. A relationship that hasn't been defined. Taking advantage of the other person's feelings, their emotions. Don't play with another person's emotions. And you young people, particularly, now here's an older person talking about generation difference, all right? You younger people, you need to be particularly careful, male-female interaction, when it comes to popular forms of social media. Texting. Be very careful. Use wisdom and discernment. Male, female. This is why this sermon comes at the end. Because I wanted to get it in you first that men and women are different. And you need to understand the differences between men and women so that you don't use or take advantage of somebody. There are certain things that go on between young men, young women, whether it's texting or it's other forms of social media, which are just wholly inappropriate. And I'm not talking about sexting somebody. I'm just talking about prolonged texting conversations. I talked to somebody four and a half months that had a texting relationship, only to end with, of course, somebody heartbroken because the relationship had not been defined. On and on and on, on and on and on. No definition. Girls, be very careful in giving out your phone number to guys. Be very discreet. Be wise. Don't just indiscriminately give your phone number to guys, especially guys you don't know very well. Listen. There are friendships in the Bible between members of the opposite sex. Jesus with Mary and Martha. Martha. Paul with women in his ministry, but they were in group settings. They weren't paired off one-on-one. Where couples that are not married, uh, not marriage-focused, are engaged in one-on-one relationships, almost always led to grievous immorality. Judah, Tamar, Samson, Delilah, Amnon, Tamar. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. It was not good that man be alone, so God created Eve and brought her to the man. Paul says the woman was made for man, not man for the woman. It's a covenant of companionship. We all, listen, rewind here. Let's start with God. Every one of us is made in the image and likeness of God. We were created in the image and likeness of God to know God and to be known by God. And if you're not a Christian, you're missing out on the greatest thing in the world, and that is to know the one in whose image and likeness you're made. 
We were created to know God and be known by God. We have an innate and inherent need to be known. And the closest thing that comes to that on a horizontal human level is a male-female relationship. And that's what happens in marriage, is to know another human being made in the image and likeness of God and to be known intimately by another human being made in the image and likeness of God is a divine human thing. But it happens in marriage, not in texting, not on Instagram, not on TikTok. Marriage. And forgive me for not knowing the rest of the social media. I admit I'm an old man. Commitment is the cup into which intimacy is safely poured and from which it is safely enjoyed. Commitment. Very, very important. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Timothy. Turn over a couple of books. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And verse 2. Well, we'll read verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. I, I, I remember years ago, I was in a board meeting. I won't tell you where it was. It was in a board meeting. And I, I, I was really upset with somebody else on the board who was my senior. And I, I just kind of let him have it. And I had to call him up after that meeting and repent because I did not encourage him as I would a father. And I asked him to forgive me. I did not address him respectfully. Read on. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Guys, these women are sisters and to be treated as sisters in all purity, physical purity, emotional purity. Do not use them. Do not take advantage of them. Do not wrong them or transgress in this matter. Turn back to Thessalonians. Look at verse 6 and 7. The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for your impurity, but in holiness. Whoever disregards this, disregards not Murphy, not an old fuddy-duddy, not an old-fashioned man, but God, 
who is anything but a cosmic killjoy, who wants what's best for you, who loved you and demonstrated his love for you by sacrificing his son Jesus Christ on the cross. But don't mess with him. Now, I need to be very sensitive in closing to those who may have done just that. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and saying, everything that you talked about this morning, Pastor, I've done. I am not what the Apostle Paul says I should be. And I'm feeling terribly guilty right now. Let me have you turn with me. Last thing, then we conclude. First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. As your pastor and preacher, I want to echo what the apostle here says, so I will personify it. My little children, I am writing, I am speaking these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word there for advocate is like a defense attorney. The one who represents you before the bar of God's justice. The one who stands and takes your place. And it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ the righteous. It's Jesus Christ the Lord. It's Jesus Christ the Savior. And look at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, it's a big word, don't let it scare you. It means to turn aside the wrath of God. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you are under the wrath of God. But there's a way out. It doesn't have to be that way. God has provided an advocate, a defense attorney, a savior, a redeemer, whose blood turns aside his wrath, welcomes you, embraces you, cleanses you, forgives you, reconciles you, and loves you up. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus because all of us have fallen short of your glory and have sinned in thought, word, and deed, if not in ways recounted by Paul to the church at Thessalonica, then most certainly in numerous other ways. We all stand humbled by your word and in need of the saving 
work of Jesus Christ. Speak to us his peace, his pardon. Today, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen and amen.